0: This is worth repeating from Texas Public Radio, real stories told by your neighbors and friends and recorded live over the last couple of years in San Antonio. I'm Andrea Vocab Sanderson, San Antonio Poet Laureate. You know those arguments that you always win? The ones you have in the shower against an imaginary adversary? Every once in a while, the universe will call your bluff and you'll get an opportunity to deliver that monologue in real life. Our first story today is about the time Eric Cooper got one such opportunity.
1: So I too grew up in a small Texas town, Argal. You guys know where Argyle's at? A couple, all right, uh, it's next to Drop. And when I uh, moved away from home to make my way in the world, um, my parents actually got divorced now there were six kids in the family i have two older brothers and i actually have a twin brother and then i have a younger brother and sister and when my dad left my mom he moved to portland oregon leaving argyle and quickly became what i guess most people would call a, a deadbeat dad he uh he didn't send child support home and my mom had worked inside the house raising kids and um now was trying to figure out how she was going to make it. She, um, she was looking for work and trying to sell the house and decrease her expenses. And I was a young entrepreneur, and I just figured it was going to be my responsibility to make sure those basic needs were met. But in doing that, I felt a lot of guilt, a lot of uh, frustration, just because I knew for my little brother and sister it wasn't going to be the same childhood that I enjoyed. I, I got to play the piano, and soccer, and wore Nikes, and for them it was going to be more about food on the table and making sure the utilities were on, and I noticed with every check that I wrote, I increasingly begrudged my dad, feeling like he had shirked his responsibilities and left him in such a bad way. In fact, I, I was so frustrated I didn't want to talk to him, and I didn't for two years. And it was at the end of those two years that I just felt like, boy, somebody needs to give him near an earful and I'm the guy to do it. And so I asked my mom, I said, Hey, I'm going to talk to dad. Have you talked to him? Do you know how to reach him? And she said, well, I know the company he went to go work for in Portland. That's about all I have. I haven't really talked to him either. My brothers hadn't. And so I started there. I called the company and, and said, Hey, uh, you know, I'm I'm looking for my dad, and and I hear he works for you, and and they said, uh, you know, he doesn't he doesn't work here anymore. He hasn't worked here in about a year and a half, and so I was like, oh, you know, this is well before Al Gore had invented the internet. You you couldn't just <laughs> you just couldn't Google people or you know Facebook them. So I really didn't know where to turn. So I, I just I thought, well, you know, if he got another job. Um, you know, he'd, he'd have to file his taxes, so I called the IRS and just said, hey, I'm looking for my dad, and um, this is where he worked. And they said, well, this is all the information that you're sharing with us is all the information we have. So if you do find him, you know, uh, <laughs> tell him tell him we're looking for him, too. And so... I uh, said, all right, you know, so I thought to call the local police department there in Portland thinking, OK, I could file a missing person. And they just said, hey, you know, you can't do that. You don't even know if he's missing. You just are trying to find him. What we recommend is that you hire a private detective. So being young and naive, I thought, well, I can't really do that. But uh, I had a photo of him. And so I made a flyer that just said that he was missing and if anyone knew his whereabouts that they should call me and i put my phone number on it i filled an entire suitcase full of these flyers got a plane ticket to portland uh, and flew there went to the apartments that his former employer had given me the address of and thought i'll just knock on doors and if people answered the door i would hold up the flyer and say i'm looking for my dad and if they didn't answer, I'd shove it in their door and hope that maybe it would get me a lead. And a lot of different responses, you could imagine, knocking on doors. But uh, I met a woman that actually saw the picture of my dad and said, hey, he used to live here. And I said, yeah, um, it's my dad. I'm looking for him. And she said, well, I used to see him at this gas station across town. If you head over there, you might find him. So I said, well, all right, are you sure it's my dad? My dad was this kind of white-collar business guy, and so I'm like, what's he doing at the gas station? She said, I don't know, but I always would see him there. So I headed over there and thinking, well, maybe he bought a gas station. And so I went in, I asked for the owner, and this gentleman walks out, and it's not my dad, so I just held up a flyer and said, I'm looking for my dad. And he said, oh yeah, he used to work here. Think he works for this transmission shop. If you head over there, you might find him. So I journey on, and um, as I head to the transmission shop, I realize Portland, like many cities, has a good side and a not so good side. And I'm driving into the not so good side, and a lot of graffiti and some abandoned buildings. And sure enough, at the end of the road, I can see the transmission shop and the parking lot's empty. And intuitively, I'm thinking it's closed. In one corner of the parking lot, there's some kids that look like they're in a gang. And then the other corner of the parking lot is kind of an alleyway where there's some homeless guys kind of meddling around. And I think if I pull into the parking lot, something bad's gonna happen. I tried to save some money. I didn't take out the rental car insurance. I know none of you have done that, but I thought, you know, I'll just go ahead and pull in so I can, you know, see the front door, and when I saw the front door, I did see the closed sign, and I don't know what it was, but it hit me like a ton of bricks. I all of a sudden became so overwhelmed seeing the closed sign, knowing that I'd been on this journey to find my dad, and all of a sudden this doubt, what was I thinking? This really didn't seem like a good idea a bit half-baked, you've flown to a state you've never been to, you're looking for a needle in the haystack, did you really think you could find him? And I don't know if you've ever been on a journey where you feel that level of discouragement, but it was fairly hopeless, and I thought for a moment um, to say a quick word of prayer. And I just was like, if I'm even on the right track, will you just guide me? And it was sitting in that rental car, looking at the map, trying to figure out, do I get to the airport or do I go back to the hotel and keep looking the next day, that I noticed out of the corner of my eye one of the homeless guys that was walking across the alleyway. And when I looked at him, with that closer glance, I realized it was my dad. Not knowing what to do, I just got out of the car and yelled, Dad. Well he looked up and he came running and just said, son I knew you would come. The only thing I could say is you look hungry, and he said I am, and I said well get in the car and he jumped in and I had passed a Denny's on the way to that transmission shop. We went there for lunch and when we walked in this is where my life changed we were greeted by a maitre d who looked at me and then looked at my dad and then quickly looked back at me and asked me if i wanted a table for one i knew what she was getting at we just didn't seem like we belonged together she saw some young kid so young so handsome Um, and then and then she saw my dad and she saw him as a as a bomb, but he was everything to me. I remember him making me feel safe when I was afraid. I remember him teaching me how to throw a spiral. I remember him in so many positive ways. Well, I told her, table for two. We sat down, we started to eat. My dad wanted to apologize. He felt like he deserved everything he got. He uh, said, Son, I'm good. I just, knowing that you care is enough, and I'm just so sorry, I, I screwed up, and I, I left your mom in a bad way. And, and I felt that power of forgiveness, right? I was like, look, I came here to give you an earful, but I, I, it's, it's what our future's going to be. And Dad, just come home and live with me. And he said, no, 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 I'm okay, I don't need help. I'm like, well, how do you live? And he's, he lived in this abandoned camper trailer without running water or electricity. Um, He said he had to be careful. No one knew he was there because they would arrest him or shoo him off. And I said, well, how do you eat? And he said, well, there's, there's this woman who has a catering business. And at the end of the day, what food she doesn't sell, instead of throwing it away, she drives the streets here in Portland and she feeds the homeless. My dad said he was the beneficiary of her generosity. Well, you can imagine, I flew home from Portland fairly screwed up, right? I I now couldn't see strangers on the street. I saw moms, I saw brothers, I saw sisters, I saw my dad. And so it transformed me, but what I've learned in the 25 years of trying to set food on the table for those in need, that it's when we're at our lowest, when we're feeling most overwhelmed, that if we'll just take the burden of someone else on our back, our load becomes lighter and that there is an opportunity for all of us to go that extra mile, as a woman did, making sure someone's father got a meal. God bless you guys, thanks.
0: Willie Rollerson is naturally talented at a lot of things. College just wasn't one of them. He tells a story of how he found that out.
2: I remember as a child listening to my grandma talking to one of my uncles. He was going through a rough patch, um, you know, one of those times where he was down. Um, And as she was coming to the conclusion of her lecture, she said four words that would stick with me for the rest of well, the rest of my 28 years. <laughs> she said, son, you got to keep trucking. Little did I know those words would go much further than the big red fire truck I had imagined as a kid. Growing up, I prided myself on making my family happy. My family is the type of family that brags. Like, whenever you do good, something do good. Oh, my goodness. My boy, they one state. Your boy, your boy play football? My boy, they one state. You know, I got one of those kind of families. Just go everywhere. You go to H-E-B, my dad would be like, <laughs> he'd be talking to the clerk. Man, my, my son made the honor roll. <laughs> 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 You know what I'm talking about? So, you know, I just had one. Of, and I prided myself on on, on those things because it, it, it made me want to do better. So by the time I was 17 years old, I like I said, I had a state championship in football. I was honor roll student. Um, I was doing good basketball and track. And I had recently joined something that would eventually change my life forever. I was doing my first year of choir, chorale. And uh I've always been able to sing but uh I was like choralism for me. I'm an athlete, you know what I'm saying? Like I <laughs> I can't be out there doing all that. But anyways, so um I I'm I'm doing something that separates me from the rest of the guys. You know, there's guys that are just as athletic as me, more athletic as me, but there's nobody who's athletic as me who can sing like I can sing. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I love that. And, you know, until Josh came around. Um, <laughs> Josh was six feet two, about 215 pounds, 17 year old. Uh, as soon as he walked into the choir room, I was like, "What was this guy?" You know, and you know, and soon, and, and it's crazy. As soon as he starts singing, like I can sing, but Josh can sing. You know what I'm saying? Josh is like a mix between a baby Luther Vandross and a Jamie Foxx, like <laughs> the voice of baby Jesus. But anyways. Uh, <laughs> Uh, You guys gotta stop laughing. (laughs) And so, um, so he starts singing, and I'm like, oh wow, this guy, I don't, I don't think I like this guy. Um, this this guy's good. So after one of my, uh, spring concerts, one of our spring concerts, he gets on the piano. Not only can he sing, he could play the piano, y'all. He gets on the piano and he starts singing this song by Jamie Foxx. It's called Heaven. And it's like, we we're in the school cafeteria, as soon as he starts singing, it's like somebody dimmed the lights. The teachers forgot that they were teachers. <laughs> the students were in pandemonium. It was like I've never got this kind of reaction when I was singing. When I sing, it's like, Oh, you're good, dude, or that's nice. Now nah, Josh got, Oh my God, you know, it was like, Okay, I don't like that. So at the end of at the end of the performance, he's I I walk up to him and I'm just like, Hey, teach me that song. He taught me three chords. Those chords weren't really right, now that I know how to play this this day. Um, but I practiced those chords until they kind of sounded like the song. Fast forward to Christmas, uh, my grandma just happens to have a keyboard set up in the living room. And I show, Hey, grandma, look what I could do. You know, and she's like, want me to buy you a keyboard, baby? Yes. So I don't know what a sustain pedal is yet. I don't even know what a keyboard stand is yet. But I have this big old 77 key Casio. I have it on my lap. I'm on YouTube. You know, this is before Justin Bieber got popular. This is when he was still on YouTube. So I was just, you know, playing finger by finger, shaking because I wasn't used to playing. And little did I know that day was the day that would change the rest of my life. (laughs) Those three chords because... It was that day I decided music was, is what I'm going to do. So fast forward to college. Um, college was something I was always nervous about. I always did good in life. I was always naturally good at everything. But college was one of those things that I was not. Um, I got around the wrong crowd. I stopped going to class. Drank a little bit too much. Um, and I ended up failing out of college. I ended up, <laughs> it was bad, um, but I never went home because I know if I would have went home, I wouldn't have finished. And so what I did was I would practice the piano eight hours a day. I would keep performing with the jazz band, with the, with the college. I'll keep performing with the chorale in the college, and i stay in good standings with my music professors. And long story short, because the um, harmonica just blew. Um I ended up applying to financial aid, and I ended up applying back into school the next year only to find out that everything gets denied. And I'm like, wow, okay, so (laughs) that sob story I wrote, financial aid, didn't really work. And so I stay out of school, I I keep practicing, I I keep the next semester going around, and I apply again, and I get denied. And so at this point, I'm at a really low place in life. I'm like, well, I failed my family. My family really just found out I failed. I was just up at school, living on friends' couches, living place to place, just trying to maintain and not tell my family what I was actually going through, when all the while, I could have just told them, went home and not went through a lot of stuff I went through, but that's just a part of being young, y'all. Y'all gotta understand. I think most of us have been there. But um Eventually, I get this phone call. One of the guys from the jazz band, the piano player, can't make it. And he calls me, and I'm like, yes, I got a rent to pay. I want to play. So turns out that this gig is for the school's provost, y'all. And so I'm like, yeah, I'm taking it. And I'm thinking it was like this fancy event. You know, I'm like, all right, I got to play for all these school board people. Got to come in a tuxedo. Come to find out, it was her family reunion. (laughs) And so, when I get there, I charge straight at her. I don't mean to do it. I charge straight at her. I'm like, look, I've been trying to get back into school. I know I messed up. I know I did this. I know I did that and the other. But I just, she's like, you set up over there. And so, I'm looking like, okay, so... I guess i go set up. Anyways, we get the playing, her family gets the dancing, everything keeps going. And she comes up to me at the end, she's like, Son, we gotta get you out of school. Come to my office next week. So I go to her office, and we go through this ordeal. We set goals, we make plans. And not only did I get back into school, y'all. My financial aid got approved with the same letter I used the semester before. It was a good letter. I put a lot of thought into it. And I finished uh, college last May with, a, with, since I've been back, 3.6 GPA. And so, with that being said, I know that with persistence, you could get through anything in life. And there's nothing else in this life that can stop me. Thank you.
0: Sheila Black is the former director of a literary nonprofit in San Antonio. She got up on stage to tell her story about disability and motherhood.
3: When I was a little girl, when I was six years old, Sister Agnes, who was this really scary nun that taught religion in my first grade class, said to me, you should become a nun. She said, a girl like you will never, ever get married And so I really think you should consider being a nun. Now, the reason Sister Agnes said this to me is that I had very crooked legs at that point because I was born with a genetic condition called X-linked hypophosphatemia, which is a name no one can say, so everyone just calls it XLH. Now, people with XLH do not absorb phosphorus, and that makes them short. They have bowed legs, um, they have soft bones and weak teeth. And I was a spontaneous case, which meant that no one in my family had ever had XLH before me. Well, I didn't take Sister Agnes' advice very seriously. I, I did not want to become a nun. And my mom had told me that I could do whatever in the world I set my mind to it. There was nothing in the world I couldn't do if I set my mind to it and I believed her. But I did worry a lot that my legs were ugly when I was growing up, and I never, ever, ever once never wore shorts, and I always felt weird when I had to dress in a bathing suit. But even though I always had probably difficulty walking long distances, and I couldn't run at all, and whenever... We played baseball in school. I would sneak a book and go way, way out in the back of the field and sit. <laughs> I would always say, outfield, outfield. Well, despite all these things, I, um, I I, never really thought of myself as having a disability until I became preg- um, pregnant with my first child. And the moment I went to my OBGYN, she got this very kind of urgent look, and she said, we, we, we have to set you up with a genetic counselor immediately just in case. And the genetic counselor, this was in San Francisco, turned out to be this totally chill guy. And he's like, don't sweat it. That illness of yours is so rare, you'd have to hook up with the guy in the Ricketts Clinic to pass it on. <laughs> <laughs> right. And seven months later, I gave birth to my first child, Annabelle, and she did not have XLH. But six years after that, I was in the neonatal intensive care unit looking down at my son, who'd just been born. And it turned out that my husband and I had a rare RH incompatibility, So my son was born with an Abcar of only two, and in his first three or four days of life, he had like three exchange blood transfusions. But I was looking down at him in his incubator, and I wasn't really thinking about that. I was staring at his legs. And there was something about them and it was a curvature, a kind of a curve that I knew as well as I knew the shape of my own face. And I said to the doctor, you know, he has XLH. And she said, well, I wouldn't worry about that. We, we have a lot here, a lot of other things here to worry about. But a day later, she came and found me in the hallway. And she said, you know what? You're right. He does. His phosphorus is very low. He does have exactly what you have. And there was this brief period where I really mourned. And I think that what I mostly mourned was this image I'd had of a tall, gangly teenage son. My son is this tall teenager playing basketball, looking hip. The kind of teenager I'd never been. Um, But I got over it pretty quickly. And I never regretted him or his XLH. But that genetic counselor had been wrong, chill and charming as he was. Um, I actually had a 50-50% chance of passing XLH on. And since the birth of my son, I've had another daughter, Eliza, who also has um, XLH. And several years after that, one night at around 9 o'clock, I got this out-of-the-blue, unexpected phone call from a relative of mine who's very religious in a way I'm not. And she said she, she felt compelled to call me Because she wanted to apologize, because she had always believed that I should never, ever have children. Um, God would not want you to have children, she said. But now that I had three of them, (laughs) um, and that they were beautiful children, she said, she wanted me to know she'd been wrong. And it was kind of an awkward moment. It was like when somebody tells you you look totally fabulous, but in a way that makes you know that they thought you looked really terrible before. <laughs> and so for a moment, I felt a little like hurt and angry, but then I reflected that for somebody who is able bodied, a person who considers herself normal, it would be hard to imagine risking passing on a disability that most people consider fairly significant. The Merck Manual says that XLH people are often um, are often shorter than normal and have an odd side-to-side gait and pains and aches from their muscles, but aside from that, they're quite robust. Uh, me and my two younger children all hover around 5 feet tall um, and we all struggle if we have to stand or walk for any length of time. But at the same time, um, we, we, we are fairly much ourselves. Um, I often encounter a term in newspaper articles I read where they talk about designer babies. And it always gives me a slight feeling of unease. Um, I've read studies that say that short people like us score lower on the happiness scale, whatever that means. But I always remind myself that we're not, we're not study subjects. We're just ourselves. And I worry about my children sometimes. But at the same time, I can't help being endlessly aware of their utter necessity, their beauty, their uniqueness. Once upon a time, I was walking down the street between the two of them, and all of a sudden I realized that all three of us possessed exactly the same awkward-to-most-people disabled way of walking. And I thought to myself, we don't move like other people. And I felt a rush of identification that was almost tribal. And I thought, we don't move like other people, but who's to say there's not unique things we've learned from our way of moving and being. Um, Once, not so long ago, I actually sat down and asked my children how they felt about the XLH i passed on to them. And they said to me, they both kind of spoke about it as if it were almost but not quite a gift. My daughter Eliza said, it's made me not fit in, but it's taught me empathy. My son Walker said, I'm sometimes bitter about being so short and about the pain, but I'm very glad to be alive.
0: You know, San Antonio has a reputation as a good place to visit, and that's in part because it's scenic and full of nice restaurants. Another reason is that San Antonians love to show visitors a good time. And John Bloodworth, in the last story for this episode, is no exception.
4: So you know how time kind of helps us erase all those bad memories we had, and we end up with just remembering those good old days. Well, that happened to me recently when I went online and I saw that after 146 years Ringling Brothers and Barney Bailey Circus was to be no more. You know, for 10 years, I was what they call the advanced PR man for the greatest show on earth. Now, what that meant is I had to jump through hoops year after year after year to produce banner headlines so the circus would sell out at the Coliseum. You know, I finally realized that it wasn't so good after all in that I had been trapped in a three ring circus (laughs) you know at at first it was pretty easy you know the, the the circus clowns everybody loves a clown some people don't but they were great with the grease paint with the funny clothes with the big shoes i'd load them in the circus van and i'd take them down to city hall and the mayor had a proclamation circus days in san antonio And, you know, it was pretty easy to get the newsmen to come down there and cover it because they were used to covering clowns down at City Hall. (laughs) But now the pressure was on. I had to do something more. So I started looking at the acts that were coming to the circus. And one year, it was gravy. There were trained monkeys that were part of the circus. And two of the monkeys, Ollie and Inga, had perfect table manners. So I thought, what a great opportunity I'm going to invite society ladies and the society editors to a baboon brunch at the Fairmont Hotel with Ollie and Inga. Thank God things went flawlessly. You know, they were served peanut butter and banana sandwiches, and they drank their tea out of little cups. Not a calamity to be had. And the next day, it was all over the news. I thought, well, this is it, what can I do? I can't do anything better than this. Well, the promoters informed me that you gotta do something to pull out all the stops. Gunther Gable Williams, the world famous animal trainer, was going to announce in San Antonio that he was retiring from the circus. Oy vey, what should I do? So I thought, okay, what do people do in San Antonio? What, What is the biggest thing that happens in our city? Tourism. So I went to Gunther and I said, Gunther, would you like to be a tourist in San Antonio, and I'll take you down and you visit the Alamo. And he said, John, that's a great idea. I have the cowboy hat, I have the boots, we go. (laughs) It was all set. But then I said, well, Gunther, I'd like for you to maybe bring one of your friends with you. And he goes, who? And I said, well, Susie, your Asian elephant. And he looked at me and says, we put her in the 18-wheeler, she's dead. So it was set. I had a stunt that I think P.T. Barnum would have been proud of, but I had a little something to take care of. I had to convince the Daughters of the Republic of Texas, the Guardians of the Alamo at that time, that this was a great idea. So I went to the president of the RT and I explained to her what we were doing and after a little bit of uh, finagling, she realized that this would be good for tourism. And she even said to me, Now, John, normally when we have a dignitary that comes to the Alamo, we present them with the Texas flag that is flown over the Shrine of Texas Liberty. I said, well, that's great. Let's give it to Gunther. But then I thought, well, Susie's going to be here, and we have to have something, some kind of a souvenir for Susie. So I I, I went outside, and it was a brainstorm. 10,000 kids parading around in coot-skin caps. That's what Susie needed. Well, after purchasing 16 and a half yards of fake fur and convincing the ladies who sewed blue jeans for Levi Strauss to make a giant, 10-foot, wide coonskin cap with a five-foot-long raccoon tail, it was set. On the day of the event, everything was ready. Now, what I did is I wanted to keep a little secret from the media, so I told them that Gunther was coming down to visit the Alamo, a private tour with the URT, and he was bringing the biggest celebrity ever to be in the Alamo city. The biggest. They arrived, they were waiting behind the long barracks, everything was set up in front of the Alamo. I was checking my last minute uh, details with my publicity assistant and the promoter, Coonskin cap was ready. I went up to the DRT president and said, now, what time will you present the flag to Gunther? She turned ashen. And she said, oh, John, I left the Texas flag on my dining room table in Terrell Hills. I didn't panic. I grabbed the promoter. I grabbed my assistant. And we charged into the Alamo grounds like, Soldiers on a mission. I ran back into the souvenir shop. I saw a display of Texas flags, grabbed a box, ran out the door, yelled at my assistant, pay for the damn thing. And we charged back up to Alamo Plaza. Now, just before we got through the arched gate that leads back onto Alamo Plaza, I stopped the promoter on the inside of the Alamo. And I said, get ready to catch this. I ran outside. threw the flag over the wall of the Alamo. He grabbed it. We ran up to the front. I presented the flag to the ladies with the DRT, and I said, now you have a Texas flag that's flown over the Alamo. (laughs) Give it to Gunther. From around the side of the building comes a a four-and-a-half-ton, 11 feet-and-a-half-tall-at-the-shoulder, ponderous pachyderm the crowd went into a frenzy. The media began to snap pictures and and cameras were rolling, and it couldn't have been a better moment. Just as they reached the center of the Alamo, Susie went down. And the hat was placed on her head. Well, she was a circus animal after all, so as soon as that happened, she went up on her hind legs, trunk in the air. That was my Kodak moment. That picture was picked up by the Associated Press and it ended up going around the world. My deed was done. My circus days were over or so I thought. About two months later I got a call from a different kind of circus. Now these were wild animals in a square ring and for the next ten years I was the advanced publicist for Hulk Hogan and World Wrestling Federation. <laughs> but that, as they say, is another story.
0: The storytellers you just heard received guidance from our story coaches Paul Flab, Brandon Hart, and Bergen Streetman. We'll be holding live storytelling events in person again as soon as it's safe to do so. If you have a story to tell, or you know someone with a great story, get in touch with us at tpr.org. Worth repeating events are produced by Paul Flav and Kim Johnson. The podcast is produced by Ben Henry. Our news director is Dan Katz. Production assistance from Rob Martinez and Kyle Perez. Bobby Salucci is TPR's Vice President of Marketing and Communications. Joyce Slocum is TPR's President and CEO. I'm Andrea Volcap sanderson San Antonio Poet Laureate, and I'll talk to you again real soon.